new beginning. All right, welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast. I'm your host today, Dr. Joshua Black. Our co-host, Sean Ram, isn't available, so you got me uh, going solo again. I always enjoy doing these episodes. And, you know, once again, it's another great day to podcast, so I'm so happy to be able to talk to Holly Barker. She is the founder of Grief Anonymous, an online and group support organization developed to support those who are grieving the loss of a loved one. Her husband of 14 years and the father of her son died in 2014 at the age of 41 after an eight-year battle with malignant melanoma skin cancer. Grief Anonymous has become a national support organization, which is so amazing. I can't imagine what it feels like, Holly, for that to occur. So welcome, Holly, to the podcast. Thank you so much, Joshua. Thank you for having me today. So I, I think, you know, the story, I'm not sure when your story truly begins in the sense of picking up the the torch and trying to help supporting those who are grieving. Was it after the loss of uh, your husband or did you have inclinations before that? That's a very interesting question and I'm looking forward to answering it for you. First of all, uh, I do know that you are located in Ontario, Canada. Am I correct in saying that? That is correct. Right. So my husband was Canadian. Uh, we uh, moved up to Canada. He was down in the United States. Uh, uh, he moved down back in about uh, 1998, and we met in 2000 and fell in love. And we lived in the United States for the good part of our marriage. And then we moved up to Canada for the last six years of his life. We, of course, didn't know it was going to be the last six years of his life. So we have that in common here that I'm talking to you about this. But when it comes to the writing, to be honest with you, the way that this started was back in the early days of his diagnosis when we were living in North Carolina. And this was uh, in 2007. And he was originally diagnosed then with malignant melanoma, skin cancer. And during that time, our family was going through just an unbelievable amount of turmoil because not only did my husband get diagnosed with a serious form of skin cancer, also we had uh, another person in our immediate family that also was diagnosed with cancer at the same time. And we were all young. We were raising a family, both, and we had young kids. And it was, it was just traumatic to us. And my, a, a couple of family members and I, uh, because we were caregivers, we took one day, one day out of this this event that was going on in our family and we went up to have sort of like a one day healing girls weekend and we went back to where i'm from up in boone north carolina and there's a mountain near where we live that's practically made of solid granite and on top of it is a beautiful retreat center kind of a spa and we just took a day to go up there to relax to rejuvenate ourselves in any way possible and I had the most amazing spiritual experience, unbelievable. I actually, through the course of what happened to me, spent an hour in heaven. And I know this sounds crazy, but it really, truly happened. And the energy of it, the power of it, the beauty of it was something that's hard to even describe into words. And it lasted an entire hour. However, I only took back with me two things in my memory of what it was about. One of the things that I remember was the, the level of love that I experienced in this. And the other side was 
the connectivity that I saw. It was almost like my last life flashed before me, but in a way, it was really just about the connections I had to people and any kind of trauma or any kind of ill course that we've had or anything of that nature all came down. All the barriers were broken and all I felt for those people were love. And the last thing I remember is writing. I was sitting at my kitchen table and I was writing furiously as, as fast as I could. And it was me just getting out into words how much I love people. And that's all I remember from the experience. And I told my family about it. I told my husband about it. And he said, you know what, Holly, if you go and start writing these letters, if you start telling people what happened to you, people are really going to think you're crazy. And I said, okay. And, and it, it was at that time that he was going through the worst part of his cancer treatments and surgeries. And I just didn't want to cause any more issues in our family at that time. So I let it go and I didn't do anything about it. I was uh, t- helping him over the course of uh, five years to recuperate from his surgeries, from the um, treatment that he received. And then finally, we got kind of the go ahead, the green light, and we decided to relocate back up to Ontario, Canada. We were living in a small little community called Waterdown, which is right above Hamilton. And we lived there in absolute bliss for five years had the most wonderful experiences, made the the best friends, had the greatest experiences with our son, traveled, did wonderful things. And I could tell that he was getting sick about in 2014. And he was re-diagnosed with metastatic melanoma in his liver, and he only lived for six more weeks. And at that time, I had sort of like, like it was about a, 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 a month or so before his actual diagnosis because I knew we were, something was really wrong. And I felt the urge to start writing and I didn't know what that was about. And then six weeks later, like it was about six weeks later, he was diagnosed terminal and it was then that it hit me. And we, uh, I I just, I would wake up at four o'clock in the morning. Um, I was dreaming about writing. I would wake up and just start writing and right as his diagnosis hit is when it happened. And we started a, a, a page on caringbridge.org. Because we had been through such trauma in the past with his diagnosis, we knew that it was going to be very difficult to be answering phone calls all day from all over the world because Jordan's responsibility was at a national level and his, his, uh, all his connections were everywhere. And so we decided we would start writing our updates on caringbridge.org as he progressed. And um, that is where it all started. And the it, by the six weeks, uh, right towards his death, we had had probably 10,000 hits on his page alone. It's almost like a community that was following what was happening. And the night that he passed away, he was, uh, he passed away at the local hospice in Burlington. I was sitting next to him after he had died um, for about an hour and I received a ding on my phone and I was thinking maybe that's my son checking in what's going on and I picked up my phone and like an email that just opened straight up it opened and I looked at my phone and the only message on it was write it down write it down Holly write it down and it I just knew that that it just all of a sudden everything just flashed behind me and flashed forward and we I uh 
you know, of course I was going through a massive amount of, of, of grief and sadness and trauma over losing my husband and then also trying to help my son through the process. And I moved the caring bridge since it's, uh, uh, it's designed to help people who are either chronically or terminally ill. I moved it over to a blog because I didn't know where else I was supposed to write. I just knew I needed to write. And it would, they would come to me in the middle of the night and it would wake me up or it would be in the middle of cooking dinner. And it was just this overpowering sense to write. And so I would sit down and I would just start writing about whatever I was supposed to write about. I don't know any other way to describe it. And it's every bit of it is recorded from the very moment of his diagnosis all the way through the, the process on the blog. And it just kept growing and growing and growing from there. And I met a wonderful friend that is still, he's going to be my best friend, one of my best friends for the rest of my life, uh, uh, lived in um, Kitchener, I believe. No, not Kitchener, one of the other, Mississauga. And he was a recovering, is a recovering alcoholic. And he had this massive transformation in a beautiful way. Uh, and, and for his alcoholism. And he said to me, if you can't find the type of grief support that you're looking for, and that's what was my problem, was I was trying to find all these resources and anything that I could to help me. And it was very difficult to find anything uh, back in those days. Why don't you come to one of my open meetings at Alcoholics Anonymous and see how we run the program and see if you can get some ideas. And so I did that and it was absolutely transformational. And I realized that the grieving population needed this desperately. And so from there, uh, the blog probably had 70,000 members on it by the end of that year. Uh, we transferred it. I actually had to move back to the United States. I moved back to North Carolina. Being in the background industry that I was in with pharmaceuticals, with uh, psychiatric medicine for 20 years, I realized that grief was just not being discussed at the level that it should be. And so I founded Grief Anonymous and in the United States, I trademarked it. We laid down the foundation for the resource hub and then Grief Anonymous and our foundation. And by the end of that year, it was uh, at that point, it was 2016. We had about 4 million people on the page. We were adding thousands of people every day into the online grief support groups. And it continues to grow every single day. And uh, that's where we're at. So I hope that kind of gives you a sense of kind of our background of what we did. And I hope that answers your question. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. Where do I start? It's, it's yeah. so, so many aspects of your journey that, you know, we could, we could talk about. And I think it's just, let's go back to the beginning, like being a caregiver and what that's like. I've never had to do that myself because um, my father died very suddenly. So what was that like? And, you know, what a, what are the, the things that people may, may not know when it comes to what caregivers go through? Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you're asking me that question because in the beginning, when Jordan was first diagnosed with cancer, there was no support groups of any kind out there for that kind of scenario. And not only that, but it actually wasn't even truly being defined as to what it is. And what it's called is anticipatory grief. Had I known that's what was happening to me, I think that it would have made an enormous amount of difference um, in helping me. And so we actually have designed a group within the uh, anonymous support groups 
that we run for anticipatory grief. And I will tell, I'm going to be straight, I want to be honest with you about the entire process of what happened to me because I know that this happens to so many other people. You, um, when he was first diagnosed, I was dealing with surgeries. I was dealing with, uh, you know, helping him recover from his surgeries. I was helping him go back and forth every day to Duke University Medical Center for his treatment. That was an ongoing process for an entire month that then turned into years, actually, and lots of surgeries. And it takes a tremendous toll on the caregiver. And the reason being is not only are you a caregiver for someone who you love, but also it's very difficult to be able to discuss your fears, your real legitimate fears of losing that person with your family, with the person who's actually going through it, because in a way it can really impact people in a negative way. It, uh, it can be alarming to the person who's actually going through the cancer. So you're, you're kind of in that scenario where you're a coach and you're a, um, a support system and then you don't really have anything supporting you and being able to talk about your deep down fears about what was going on. And I think my, my problem was kind of multiplied because of the fact that I, at that time, I was dealing with some high level medicine. We were, I was selling a, a medicine for uh, chronic kidney disease, um, people who had um, renal failure. Um, it was an injectable product and I was calling on teaching hospitals. So I had access to a tremendous amount of information. I knew how to read studies. I knew uh, how to understand. I knew the websites to go to to truly look at and see what I was really facing. And what I was facing was the possibility that um, because of his the level of his illness, he only had about a 20% chance of being alive in 10 years. And so I knew that, and he lived eight years. And so when you are living under that umbrella or a dark cloud, it's like you, you, it, it can transform you even there because then you start really appreciating your days. You really start appreciating the conversations. Your parameters about what's important to you as a person start changing because your life is automatically changing. And you start seeing things in a different way, in a different light. And I saw Jordan. It was very interesting the first month of his initial diagnosis. He transformed. He was seeing in technicolor sometimes. He became a person without fear. He started rising up into his, his role and his work. He was talking to national leaders in, in his company that were making big decisions and big changes based off his discussions. And my point being is that it, it almost like you're, you're, you, as a caregiver, your life can transform into a parallel life. You can be living the life of the reality of the pain and the sickness and the ongoing issues that have to do with life. And then you, on the other side, are given a, a, a almost like a timeline. And you almost have a, a name tag to what might happen. And a lot of people live, through, live in this whether their their loved one goes on forever and they're just like, for example, Alzheimer's uh, diseases, uh, degenerative diseases such as these that take, can some take, sometimes take decades and, and slowly deteriorate, it really has an impact on caregiving. And it, it needs to be more widely recognized. And a lot of times it's the root cause of a lot of our own illnesses. And so that's one of the reasons why I want to talk about this so much is because people have to be aware of their own health. 
because you're always putting someone else's health first because their health is in danger. But you have to keep up your own health. You have to eat, sleep, and exercise. That's one of our uh, the top three tenets that we have out of our 10 tenets of Grief Anonymous is sort of like the body temple where you're uh, connecting to your consciousness or a higher power. Uh, you're seeking a sanctuary. So we, we recommend finding a, a, a place where you can go to pray or go to cry or go to meditate. I did all these things. You know, I, I didn't do them during my anticipatory years because I didn't know. But what I am able to do is reflect back and say, for caregivers, for people who are nursing a, a terminally ill or a severely chronically ill person, it really is truly important to take care of yourself because I didn't. I didn't know. I had no outlet. And I literally succumbed to mental illness of my own through PTSD. And my PTSD wasn't understood at the time. And what I was experiencing PTSD for was because I was in the middle of his traumatic surgeries. And here I am giving injectable, you know, medicines into my husband through pick lines, through not, well, he had a, he had one that he had to take home with him, but I was also nursing. He had major surgeries all over his body and it was traumatizing to me to the point where my brain couldn't process what was happening to me. And then I also had no outlet for it. So I did seek out a counselor. I did seek out um, a psychiatrist. And they were working with me. And, but the problem was my grief wasn't being put in the forefront. It was Holly has these mental illnesses and she has a sick husband and therefore her mental illnesses are being exacerbated. Um, that is not the case because since I, Jordan and I went through this process and then once we moved to Canada, I, kind of got rid of not saying that everybody needs to do this in any way shape or form because there are a lot of people that have mental illness who are also caregivers that then their mental illness gets exacerbated but my point is is that grief needs to be truly better defined in the medical community as a root cause to a lot of the stressors and the issues that um, caregivers go through and so it got to the point where we had a lot of things going on in our family. My, fam my parents were divorcing at the time. Uh, we had some major crisis that was going on in the uh, company that I was working for. And then my husband, of course, was trying to recover from his surgeries. And it really just basically did me in. I hit a wall one day. I, I had to go on medical leave with my company. And my psychiatrist found a program for me to go into that was sponsored by a hospital, but it was sort of like a day hospital where you could go for at eight o'clock and then you could leave it at five and go home. And I'm like, okay, well, at least I'm going to find a place where there's going to be people that are understanding what I'm going through and I can go and sit down and talk to people about this problem. And my days in session were about my husband being severely ill and how that was, you know, how that was playing out in my life. And once again, my PTSD from the experience wasn't even being addressed. It was just, you know, being diagnosed as a mental disorder. And the, what I found, unfortunately, was that nobody else was in there for the same reason as I was. Other everybody else in there was in there for a mental illness or for trying to harm themselves or harming other people. And you know, it was even a worse experience in that aspect. And I just, you know, I, I, I guess what I'm saying is, is that I left that I, I didn't, it was a three week program. I left after two weeks. 
um, realizing that it really actually didn't do anything but actually more harm to me because I, again, I, I had a psychiatrist in, that basically her, my only grief counseling in that two weeks that I was there was everybody has a 50-50 chance of living the next day and you're just going to have to move on and just deal with it. And that is the worst thing you could say to someone who's a caregiver, because not only is that statistically and, you know, categorically incorrect, but that it is that it shows the disconnect that's really, truly going on for people. And so that was one of the things that galvanized me once I had found myself in the grieving world and not being able to find the resources I need, not being able to find other people who had been through my same experiences, but then looking back and realizing, what was that? And then I started connecting the grieving feeling that I was feeling then to what I was feeling in the past. And I actually, I, I, I called it anticipatory grief myself. And we started talking about it in Grief Anonymous uh, back four years ago. Now, all of a sudden, everybody's talking about anticipatory grief. Now, whether that came from us or it harkens back before and I just never found it or associated with it, either way, it found me and I found the, the term. So I don't know if that started with us or not, but my point is, is that it is a real, real phenomenon and it really needs to be addressed and understood and, and that's one of our missions. Wow. That's a lot. That's a lot to, for you to even have to go through and to not have the resources and support. I can't imagine. So that difficulty, not only you face, but so many other people have faced along the way in trying to understand what, what's occurring and trying to explain it to people. So I'm really happy that you do have a part of your own program that can really help people in that field to feel heard, to, to normalize the experience where you're just trying to figure it all out. And I can only, like, you're talking about, it, I'm like, man, like I would have burnt out, like you're doing, not only are you caregiving for someone you love and you're experiencing those emotions, but then you're trying to like raise a child, you're trying to go back to work and work is, you know, like the amount of time and effort, you know, work takes on someone, it's enough to put them to burn out. And then you have everything else on top of it. And so like, it's just like, what do you, what do you do? But you found a way through, <laughs> which is nice. <laughs> you know, it I wasn't survived. easy, but you, you survived. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's like those people who can survive if they, if they understand the difficulties and the challenges they face. And they said, like, as you stated with your vision or your experience of heaven about the love for people, it's like, how can I help? people so they don't have to go yes. through this themselves like how can i make it easier for people because this was there's got to be a better way because this is insane on what you had to deal with and i'm happy that you really took that torch up to really help people find a way to feel supported and to normalize some concept that you said like maybe we're not highly available in the research or in common discussions on grief support when you started this that's very true and, you know, the thing is, is that I've always had a very strong faith in God. But now, and a lot of people say I'm a believer in faith and Jesus and, and God and all of those things. But I, I, I just can't even use those terms. I'm a knower because I've been there. And, you know, the thing is, is that when you're told to write it down and you're having these emotions and having these experiences, that's basically the task that I was given. And so... I'm just complying and 
it has mushroomed and um i just i always it's it's always sort of like it's always where i go you said let's go back to the very beginning that is the very beginning for me it's sort of like my reset button when i feel like i'm headed in the wrong direction or i'm in a situation where i'm not sure which way to go i always go back and hit that reset button and i always re- realize that really the the truth of the matter is it the power of writing it down is enormous and sharing and that's kind of the whole way that has helped me. So going out there and, and actually creating a group for anticipatory grief and then having these people join and hearing their stories is extremely healing for me because it is a reminder of where I was, but that now I'm finding these people in the scenario that I was in, and it is enormously healing and gratifying to me personally that I'm able to, to connect and find these people. And one of the things that we're going to be doing is because of COVID, and I find it very interesting too, that it's almost like, and I didn't do this in a, in a vacuum of my own mind, uh, creating Grief Anonymous and all of the programs and, and where we're at. This is a combined effort of a lot of in, incredible people within Grief Anonymous, within our group. And it, I don't know. It's just the, the fact that it, it's, it's been extremely healing giving back to these people. And then it just continues to grow. And I think that's the one group and the one topic that I think is probably one of our highest level of um, needs right now because of COVID, because you're dealing with a lot of people who are being separated, um, people who are aging in you know, nursing homes that are passing away and then not even being able to give proper burials. There's just so much right now. It's like we started something that wasn't widely available, not widely understood, and then now we've been hit with this pandemic. And in a way, I feel like the entire world now understands a concept of grief because we are all in a new normal. And we're all, and I'm, I'm, I'm watching at a macro level, communities, countries, I just everything going through at a high level, the grief process is unfolding at a, a humanitarian, a, a humanity level, what goes on in an individual grieving person's life. And it's fascinating. Um, and I'm hoping that all these things that were shown to me to write it down before, now that we've done all the work, and now that COVID's hit, we're ready. And I'm just like, divine timing is something that's extraordinary. And, you know, you can plan out your life all you want to, but what's going to happen in a lot of ways is going to happen. Of course, there's free will and choice. And, you know, that's why we're here. But it's phenomenal that at least we have all of our organization together and the structure sound and the websites up and running and everything and now we are really being able to take people in who need it and I think that um, it's it's going to be exponential on you know the coming years until we get a vaccine until things get under control and um, but I'm glad that we have what we we can have and now we're able to actually do more and not have to not have to build as much does that make sense <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. And it's great you're at that process where it's it's like a finished product that people can search and go to and all the bugs in there have been tweaked and worked out. And so it's it's mm-hmm. a vision of what you've always thought about. And now it's about just allowing people to come and find you. 
And that's the beautiful aspect of the internet, right? There's some negative aspects, but you know, of the internet, mm-hmm. but you exactly. know, there's also this, this beautiful aspect where people can find you from all around the world. So for people who are interested, like what's the process in joining or even finding support and what kind of support is on the, uh, the website? Sure. So the Grief Anonymous website is truly, we want to be 100% transparent about our organization, who we are, what we're about. There's no hidden anything because, you know, sometimes the name Anonymous is, is associated with a lot of other things that are in darkened nature, and that's not us at all. We are absolutely crystal clear about our organization and what we do. We do not charge people any money whatsoever for joining our network. And right now, our platforms are on uh, Facebook. Uh, that's where we got started. So our website is basically kind of read-only, where some people can fill out forms of if they want to join in uh, um, volunteering or if they want to create a Grief Anonymous program in their local community, they can do it. Uh, they can talk to us. We go through an interview process. So that the Grief Anonymous website is basically to explain our organization. We explain our tenants on um, each tenant in the website because one of the things that is important for everyone to know is that a lot of people have grief brain in the beginning and it is very difficult to absorb information and so we have it as a singular explanation then we have a kind of a paragraph written explanation and then we have a video of me explaining it so people regardless of where they're at emotionally um, where they're at you know from being able to absorb uh, learning and education, it's all there that can encompass like the full spectrum. Uh, some people understand better by seeing a video, some people understand by writing, reading, so it's all there. And uh, that's what that website is for. Now it might expand in the future, but really it's to kind of display who we are. Uh, the Grief Resource Network has been basically like building a B-52 bomber, and we just got it off the ground running, uh, truly running this week, um, and that's been several years in the making. And what we did with the Grief Resource Network is we thought of every aspect of how a grieving person is impacted and how we can raise the bar and truly get – there's a lot of misinformation out there about grief as well. And so what we're trying to do is we have, for example, a section of grief hotlines. So we, we're like number two or three in Google search for grief hotlines. However, we don't have our exact hotline ready yet, similar to how the Alcoholics Anonymous programs, but we're very close to that. Uh, but right now we have a list of over 40 hotlines right now from everything from suicide to domestic violence, anything that would involve a grieving person because it takes a community, it takes a village to help. And it's not just about grief support. It's people who have lost a loved one due to domestic violence. There are people who are separated from their children, all kinds of horrific things that are going on out there in the world. We have tried to scope and find all of the hotlines that we think uh, and encapsulate any kind of situation that a grieving person might be looking to get help for, and we have that listed on the website. We are going to be expanding out a crisis network. Um, I, I can talk to you a little bit about that later, but we will be working on that endeavor next year. We have what's called Griefopedia, and because my background is in uh, the pharmaceutical arena and the psychiatric community, 
I, uh, we are going to be working with, right now we're working with uh, one, uh, a lot of PhD candidates who are doing research in the field of grief right now. And what we're trying to accomplish is being a conduit for medical and academic institutions looking to increase their awareness and understanding of grief because we have the population of people that would be interested in joining their surveys and their studies. And so this is going to be sort of like the conduit for that where researchers can post their, their studies and their research and then people can, as if they want to and on a voluntary basis, join into their study and be a part of that. So that's part of what we're doing. And then uh, we also have a vendor, what we call our vendor or helping professional section. A lot of people who are doing wonderful work out there struggle very difficult in a very difficult way with their marketing of their business. Uh, they are new or um, they've just been, it's just so hard to get your rankings up into the search engines for people to actually be able to find you. So one of the things that we, this is about is local grief support specialists would be able to join our network um, and we've we've one of the our upgrades is that you can either join for free all the way to being a premier partner of ours it's just two hundred dollars annual fee but that gives you a whole cornucopia of opportunity to market yourself within our grieving community which is a large grieving population and so that was my that was my my most important effort harking back to the days uh, when Jordan first passed away, trying to go online and find a grief counselor in our local area was impossible. I could not find it. And I'm like, why is this? I know they're available. It's because the, the technology that's out there on the internet doesn't allow people to truly find people the way they used to. Now they've added uh, local, and so it's bringing more in, which is really good. But this is going to be a, a, a great opportunity for smaller entrepreneurs who are using their grief for the opportunity to help others. And we want to find those people and put them in the network so that our membership can find them. It's like a membership directory. <laughs> That's cool. And so you have all these sort of, you have a lot of uh, different aspects to it. Are there grief groups in person or is it just through Facebook right now? Okay. So we, we're stratifying, and due to COVID, things have changed dramatically. Um, but I, uh, we have, first of all, we have our online grief support groups on Facebook, and it's under Grief Anonymous. Uh, we have about 20 different groups and about 50,000 members, and we are adding between 30 and 50 people a day to those groups. Then we have started looking into a actual grief support online program and we're running we're working with a lady who just graduated from harvard university whose mother is in a retirement center in california and they were trying to figure out a way to help uh, re uh, grieving seniors connect with each other because everybody is isolated right now and so we had started working with them it's called highway 61 and uh, we are doing our grief support group online with them uh, on Wednesdays at 11:30, and we're just test marketing it right now. We're trying it out. We're seeing, and one of the things we like about it is it's similar to podcasts where you don't have people in front, where you, where it's like Zoom, where you there's it takes out all of the 
well, I have to take a shower. I have to figure out a place to do this. I have to make sure, you know, all this, that, you know, we don't want any of that. So it's just kind of faces, but not real faces. And it's people being able to talk and we, we run it like a true grief support program. So we're working on that. Um, and we're looking at doing more of those within the group online. And then we would also post them on our websites as well, but that's still in the works. And the last thing is uh, uh, we did start our local grief support group three years ago as of this month. And I own a, a iconic little diner restaurant on Route 66 in Wilmington, Illinois called The Launching Pad. It is a, a, a an international tourist destination and we have been running our program there for three years very successfully. We had well over, we had about 20 people a week uh, to our, our group meeting that were coming. Uh, and then COVID hit. And of course, we're going through a lot of changes with, you know, social gatherings and things of that nature. So we've tried to, we, we, we over the summertime, we held our meetings in a park in open air. Uh, next to a river and so we did that for several months this summer but now that winter's coming and it's it's uh, not a good time we've actually had to cancel that right now but uh, we will you know once things get up and running and there and we find a, a better situation we'll probably commence to doing that especially after there's an effective vaccine that takes place um, but that's you know everybody's sort of been railroaded right now with when it comes to these kind of things which i think is interesting that we have everything up and running online so everybody's just able to go and transfer over to the online program. Yeah, I like that, that there is that online. It A lot of people had a shift during the pandemic. And I'm really curious to know, just like as we move forward with research being done, how effective online is versus in person? Because I know there's a lot of people that may just choose online just because it's their personality style and what they want. Um, but many people I know would prefer to be in person. And so what is there, uh, how much of a decrease is that? compared to sort of the, the in-person support groups. And this is what, sort of what we're trying, but it's like, it's a, you're, you're doing the best you can given the circumstances. And I'm glad that there's something mm -hmm. that's gonna be offered to people. At least they can voice their concerns and voice their grief uh, in a open setting, um, in a safe setting, where you, know, you said mm -hmm. a lot of people are grieving very different aspects. And it's, sometimes it's hard to put that, your grief on them in that way, because you could tell they're already struggling and they wouldn't be able to hold your your suffering. And so to be able to find people that can um, in a supportive group, I think is amazing. So, you know, I'm really happy that's up and running uh, at this moment. Mm -hmm. You know, the thing that um, everybody's going to be different. There are some people that truly need to have that one-on-one -on -one face human connection, and that's what they're going to need most. Other people are the type of people that can't even get off their couch for a day, that they're stuck on their couch. They are in so much pain, they can't leave their house. A lot of people get, I don't want to call it agoraphobia, where they go out and it's just too much and too overwhelming, but some, there's some fear of leaving the home a lot of time for people and because they're going to go into familiar sites and places and things that they did with their loved one, and it's going to be a huge trigger for them. So there's a lot of people that like to stay in their home. We also don't want to call it isolating yourself because we sort of consider it hibernating. I wish the world would consider the fact that we could go and hibernate and do some introspection and um, meditation and come out altogether better for it. And I hope that's eventually what happens. But, you know, everybody needs something a little bit different. But what we've noticed is that the people who do both have enormous improvement but even the online groups are 
absolutely healing and amazing and have we've had people that have developed incredible long-term friendships simply because it's not just words being typed behind a, a computer board you know, a keyboard these people actually do reach out to each other we actually have a a national get together every single year in nashville in uh, october uh, through our dating after loss group for widows and widowers and people who have lost fiancés and life partners and we last year we had over 150 people there bands all kinds of fun things going on so from these online groups have sprung into these these type of um, events that we have going on so the, the the healing and the understanding and the connection is there whether it's online or it's local um, we were just getting started with expanding our our local groups and uh, but you know what it's, it's one of those things that things kept kind of being wonky keep kept falling through in different ways and that's when I go back and I hit the reset button again and then COVID hit the pandemic hits and I'm like ah can you imagine if we would have been halfway through this program with all of our attention endeavors put into doing local programs and then it all fall apart <laughs> so so I think I was sort of saved by by God on that one because I didn't know what was coming and that's the funny thing too is I've started realizing that people consider you know things that they try to do as failures when they don't work but then when you realize sometimes it's a, a hurdle that you're supposed to go over or step aside and go around because there's something bigger or something more important or the reason why things happen usually reveal themselves once that happens so i never consider things a failure i always consider trying well if that's not going to work i know the outcome is this and we need to get to that so how do we get to that? And then we try. And so when things don't work the way we want them to work, then we try a different way. And then all of a sudden it kind of gets revealed that this is the way it was supposed to be. And we have a big aha moment and then we move <laughs> forward. <laughs> I like that. Well, it's surrendering to what is, and you can't force it before it's time. I, and I've learned that too, you know, with many different things, especially even awareness of like grief dreams is you can't force it beyond its time. There's, there's a, a certain aspect that things need to go like the dominoes need to fall in a certain order for it to have the impact it needs to and so for you it was like really it's just first was just writing down like listening to your intuition yeah. and writing down blogs for others and to do it for the kindness of your heart as i said like it wasn't about making money it was about just sharing what you're going through mm -hmm. and letting that lead the way i think this is a good time to transfer into grief dreams and so let's go back we can to when you're a caregiver did you notice anything about uh, the dreams that you were having? And were you having any of Jordan? Ah, uh, that is, wow. Yes. The crazy thing that happened to me soon after Jordan was diagnosed with cancer and I realized the gravity of his cancer and the situation, I started having a reoccurring dream every single night. And it was the same dream over and over again and maybe hopefully you can help me with this because it was awful it was i would i was in a different reality and i was with someone else and i could not understand it and the subject matter was never about the new person i don't even think i saw a face of who the new person was it was just a knowing that i was with someone else and here i am in the middle of my marriage which was a very solid marriage and i had a 
six-year-old son and, you know, we were just building our lives and growing together. And yet I was having a, a nightmare literally every single night that I was with someone else and I was searching for Jordan. And then I would wake up and it just happened over and over again. That is interesting. And you would think it would reflect, you know, the grief and that you're facing and how I think say so. That. Yeah, it will like dreams represent our waking life. And especially if like these distressing dreams, it would reflect a lot of what you're trying to process in the sense of looking for Jordan. And it could have been the, the Jordan before the cancer, right? And like what and your visions of what life would would be. And now you're dealing with a new version, one that's time limited. And it's very difficult to process that and the emotions that go go with that, especially when you're caregiving for someone, it's a different relationship right there's different challenges that go and frustrations that go along with that and different expectations you put on yourself and they put on you so it is really like walking in a new relationship so if i was just talking to you like i am now i would probably just reflect on Mm -hmm. that new person is probably jordan but it's the new version of them that's seems different than the old version in the sense of the responsibilities you know what you signed up for and all the struggles you're facing because people don't understand like when you lack sleep when you're really being burnt out the joy in you really goes away. And when you can't have that, that happiness as you once did, you project your vision of the world becomes tainted through that lens. And now the person you love, you're going to have moments where it's not as strong, just because of the lack of sleep, the lack of sort of care, as you sort of said, you're trying to figure out your own mental health, you know, like how that changes the way we see those we love. And that's the sad thing. And that's why I think having support groups, educating people on grief and even sleep. That's why like my big thing is sleep and dreams. You can help people start understanding more of what they're dealing with and maybe some of the things that they should focus some of their attention on to get back into a space where they're able to balance the challenges of life to get back to where things used to be in a way. And, you know, I said, like, just with your conversation, you can just sort of tell what a challenge it was (laughs) to actually be in that role of caregiver. You know what, that really shed some light on me. Thank you on that, because you're right. It was, you know, sometimes because of I've had so many, I would call them prophetic visions of the future, what what things need to be. I I just assumed that it would be for me, because I I think just a little bit differently, I guess, than other people is that it's a, it's a premonition of what's to come because, yeah, I have met my new partner who is also a widower and lost his spouse to cancer and had young children like me. So I would assume that. But I, I really believe what you're saying is that it is the brain trying to process a new relationship because I could not fathom at that time the thought that we weren't going to be together. I mean, right in the middle as a young family, building your life and then finding out that your husband has a possible, you know, very serious terminal type cancer, it just throws you into a whole different dimension that I can't even explain. And yeah, lack of sleep was, well, I was at that time because I was seeing a psychiatrist, I was on quite a bit of medicine taking. And and so I didn't have that much problem sleeping, but yet it was kind of like a a medically induced sleep to help with the PTSD and the anxiety. But yet I was still having that reoccurring dream that was just absolutely ripping me up every single day. And that went on for years. So if you can imagine, you know, I do believe that if, if grief is left untreated, if grief is left 
misunderstood. If people are not able to share, connect, and understand, it absolutely does turn into a mental illness. The brain is no different than any other organ in the body. And you can have a sick pancreas, you can have a sick kidneys, and you can have a sick brain. And I truly believe that this, the, the level of trauma that caregivers go through can create true mental illness. And, and that's why I, I truly believe that part of the reason why God had this path for me is that I spent an enormous amount of time in the psychiatric community. My first medicine that I was actually marketing and representing was Prozac. And it was remarkable back in the day to talk to doctors because it truly was a breakthrough medication that helped a lot of people from committing suicide. And I just remember the conversations that I had back then. And then it kind of lost its way and it turned into a mega, you know, thing where everybody started getting, you know, medicated practically in the water. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, I, I don't also want to dismiss the, the, the huge impact that the medical community can have with, you know, helping grieving people because, yes, mental illness is a component and can become a part of the scenario of what happens. And with sleep, the sleep is disturbed horribly in grief. And some people sleep way too much. Some people don't sleep enough. And the dreams that come from these experiences are quite dynamic. And I think it, it ranges in a spectrum from a true spiritual encounter and experience where loved ones are reaching through, spirits reaching through, all the way to just diseased nightmares or, you know, medically induced, you know, sleep issues that are coming up. It's, it's all, all of the above. And I applaud you for taking on this aspect because it's huge. Yeah, most people, it's, it's interesting, right? One third of our life is sleeping and really we're not taught about any of it and the benefits of it. So a lot of people have a misperception on why they even sleep and why it's important. It's great to clarify some of the stuff for people because it's not, just not taught. From all of your expertise and experience and discussions with people, what, what, what is it about sleep and grief dreams that is involved with helping people? And, and what, what, what is it from my experience that I can learn from you on this? That's a big question. <laughs> How much time you got? <laughs> I have a ton of time and I want to hear it. I want to hear it because I'm going to be sharing your words into my organization and people. It could be it some, a, a, yeah. Well, it's something that we can also, you know, go into further detail. I can even give you some of like a script and, and some stuff that is very important because when it comes to sleep and the, and the challenges people face, if you don't get enough, is just from health difficulties to memory and cognition. Like people can't, their long-term, their short-term memory is affected. So like how are you supposed to do any kind of cognitive problem solving? Like all that stuff is affected. Then your health, you have what your immune system goes, can really uh, get mm -hmm. hindered. If you're not getting that, so now you're becoming more sick. Uh, your mood, uh, greater risk of depression, suicidal thoughts, erratic behavior. Um, so there's there's so much a part of sleep, and that's without the dreams. Then you add in nightmares, and you got a different ball game. On now you're even now people are afraid to go to bed because of these sleeps, or it disrupts their sleep and wakes them up. And so it's really if you can correct some of the the distress from dreams, then you can more understand now what are the difficulties with sleep. But it's very hard to tackle sleep if someone's having like nightmares especially you know the deceased loved one dying again or being chased stuff like that and when you can provide answers or some understanding to what they're going through 
so that their their distress of the situation and they can go as lower and then also their they can provide them tools for them to to then be active participant and helping reduce those and learning from those so then you can become move forward with your grief a little bit more easily it's it's a uh, it's wonderful and then we have those you know positive dreams that really have its own effect on helping people through the grieving process and can also you say like help them in their their sleep because you know they're really intertwined so um even in like sort of trauma and our grief sleep dreams and grief and trauma are very intertwined with one another and if you, if you play if you change one the other ones can get affected positively mm-hmm. negatively so um it's just yeah there's there's a lot to say and that's something we can sort of talk about off air to really if you want to put something as one of your tenants and to for people to learn more i'm happy to help absolutely. you out absolutely I really, I, I really think this is key. And you've touched on something that I can bring to you from my experience over these years doing our, our local grief support program is that our, our widows and widowers, except, uh, it seems to be especially the ones who have been married for many decades, they can no longer even go in their bedroom anymore or they do not sleep in their marital bed. And I know several people just within my own group who sleep in recliner chairs because they can't sleep in their marrow bed anymore because it's just too painful to them. And so you know that their sleep is being severely disturbed. And on the same level is that, you know, it's during the day that most, especially with seniors, people who are um, older in age, they do most of their activities during the day. And then they come home in the evening and then it's those, those, if we call it like the witching hours between a meal time and sleep is the normal time when most of them have been connecting with their spouse and they, uh, they don't have that. So they have a, a still silence in their house. It's just, it's, it's a, a palpable emotional, physical feeling that they go through. So part of that is that they are going through that separation grief during those hours before they go to sleep and then they go to sleep and then the dreams are happening and not only are they not sleeping well and they're not you know coming up to a point of where they're starting to sleep and they're going through you know severe grief at that time but they're sleeping in recliners they're sleeping on couches and so they're not sleeping in in an environment that is conducive to healthy sleep and well-being yeah, that's just a lot for someone to then also then you're trying to ask them to process their grief. And it's like, how? Mm-hmm. Like they can't sleep. It, like it's just, it's too much of a barrier for healing to occur. True. And on top of that, one of the things that happens when you have a, a, a negative sleep pattern is it starts also affecting your heart. And so you're going to have, like you said, the immune system is being affected. And there's such a thing as broken heart syndrome. I mean, my goodness, it's not even nearly being given the credence that it needs to. Um, but, you know, when you have those cycles where you're, you're not sleeping well, it is going to affect your, your heart in a lot of ways. And I think a lot of people uh, suffer severely and they're just being diagnosed with the, the, the root cause of why they're not sleeping well is then also being compounded by heart problems. So it's not being related back to their sleep or their grief. And um, if we get in there and we start solving these core problems of helping people identify what's going on with them and they start finding alternative solutions to being able to sleep, that is in and of itself going to save their life. Yeah. 
Agreed. So we have agreed that sleep is very important. <laughs> Extremely important. That's why we have the tenant. Tenant three is uh, focusing on the fundamentals of sleep, diet, and exercise. Because, and when we say that, it doesn't mean go out and run a 5K and eat a vegan diet and get your eight hours. That is impossible. This is about getting people to the ability to even be able to go grocery shopping because they have to go grocery shopping for one or they can't go down the aisle with all the baby foods because their their infant died or you see what I'm saying like there's a whole cornucopia of problems associated with eating and grief and then exercise people who are stuck on the couch and it is a monumental occasion for them to be able to get up and even just take a shower after 7 days you know, so what our exercise is, is move to a different room in the house where you can look out a different window or go and try and walk down to the end of your driveway and back. And then our another topic is for sleep, like find a different sleep in a guest bedroom. Try that. Try doing something ahead of schedule so that you have mindfulness and downtime and listening to something positive so you can sleep. So it's all these things of even the, the we, we consider this tenant as a micro level tenant or a macro level tenant, depending on where you're at and what you're capable of doing. But all, all things are positive. And that's another thing, too, is that people need encouragement. So if they do something to help themselves feel better and sleep better, if they take up something that maybe helps them a little bit, that's a huge positive in their in their book, regardless of what the rest of the world thinks. Yeah, and as you're saying, like you know, like if you can't sleep, medication it can be helpful for the short term. Mm-hmm. And just to be able to process some of the stuff and changing the environment and your your routine of sleep is very important. And that's you know, there's a lot people just don't know, and that's why I love educating people on that topic. Yeah. And so I want to move over to dreams after loss. Have you ever had any dreams after loss of someone who has died? I have. I've had two dreams. The dream that I had about Jordan, I've only had one dream that I truly just felt the essence of him. And it was shocking. And it, was, it, was, it felt very, very real, but it was very confusing to me. So maybe you can help me. I uh, Probably a couple months after his death, I dreamed that he was coming home from work. And I don't even think he knocked on the door. I dreamt that I opened our front door and he walked in. I could smell him. I could, I mean, it was like, it was as vivid as I, as it could be. I had full sensory. It was a full sensory dream. I could smell him. I felt the air uh, come in from the cold. I felt the wind in my face and he had his backpack from work. He was walking in and he had kind of a look on his face. His eyes were red. You could tell he was not feeling well. And he said, I feel sick. And then he just walked past me and walked up our stairs. And it stunned me. And I guess the the dream stunned me so much because it was so sensory uh, that I, I just woke straight up. Like he like walked through me. And I don't know. I don't know anything about that. I don't understand it. What an experience though, right? Like, and a lot of people, mm-hmm. it's interesting because, you know, there are a lot of people that long to have a dream where they can see them once again and have that sensory experience because that's the, the thing that's, that's missing in your life. Um, but then, you know, on top of that, it's great. You had that experience, but then you have this extra aspect where they're, they're ill or they're dying again. And that's common, you know, soon after loss. And as you, you know, it's really tied with as how you're processing your grief and, 
um, you've seen them sick for so long, you know, and the mind's still trying to work through that. And, you know, sort of the research I've, I've done um, has sort of shown how these negative dreams are associated with uh, trauma and, you know, feelings of uh, guilt or blame. And so you already talked mm-hmm. about how dramatic it was for you to be the caregiver and to, to be with someone and to sit with or not even sit with your anticipatory grief, um, but to have that just play out for those eight years, y- you just understand like, okay, that makes sense. So mine's really just trying to work through it all and what it all means. You keep using the word processing. And so that's really resonating with me. I, I, I see visions of like the mind is similar to a computer when it's, on think mode and it and you got the little spinning wheel and i think that a lot of people are left with a mental spinning wheel for a long time the brain is trying to fully from a sensory perspective a mental emotional spiritual physical level is trying to process grief trying to process the loss trying to process change trying to process fear and so our it, it that seeps and, and gets into our dreams and gets manifested into that kind of a scenario. Like why, if, if I was going to have any kind of connection with Jordan from a, a dream perspective, why would it be that, <laughs> you know? Right. And I, yeah. I feel a little gypped over it, but you know, it's, it, I, I, I really attribute that kind of a dream to mental, you know, a, cog, a mental, like you said, a processing aspect of just trying to get the fact that he's gone i I guess Mm -hmm. that's what it would be yeah yeah and to like you're not alone in having that type of dream so it is one of the the more common negative imagery dreams when a sense of the the deceased themselves is not healthy which you know um, if you actually look at the data it's actually really common it's more common for people to have positive dreams of the deceased being healthy and happy after loss and that's why it's this topic is so fascinating to me just because it goes against a lot of previous research in the sense of the commonness of positive dreams when the deceased is in the imagery. Because you wouldn't really expect that given the research on just dreams in general and our mood and, and trauma and stuff, how you know most of our dreams are negative. After trauma, they're even more negative. But yet when the deceased is in, in the imagery, people are having these positive dreams, which is like, what's going on here? Like, <laughs> and so it allows mm-hmm. sort of there's something else going on that we just haven't really understood to a large extent. But these negative dreams, we do understand a lot of them just based on trauma literature in itself of just the mm-hmm. mind trying to process it and trying to work through it. And that's the beauty of, of sleep is pro- it's, it's processing. You're not just shutting down. Right. You're actually your mind's very active in sleep and it's trying to process your waking day and help you out. And you, when you remember these dreams, you get a glimpse of what it's working on for you. And like that's why, like mm. with grief, a lot of people think you have to be consciously looking at what you're doing to have growth. But no, like when you're asleep, your mind's working behind the scenes. I don't know everything the body's doing, but I know it's doing a lot more than I know. It's like I don't know how a cell phone works, but I'm using it, right? Like it's just kind of the same thing. It's like we're using something and we um, but we don't fully understand the what actually is going on underneath it all that's helping us mm-hmm. be healthy and happy. And you're just trying to find it, give it the environment to do what it knows how to do, which is heal. And so if we can give ourselves that environment, all of a sudden it's doing it can do its job, right? Like the body's so phenomenal and resilient at working through grief and trauma if we can give it the environment to grow. Well, I know that this is your expertise and this is what you hear every day. But for me, 
learning from you. This is something very important that I want to relay out from this is that when you are having these dreams, it is your brain working for you and working, you know, sort of like doing the back end work for you. So a lot of times what I try to help people understand moving forward is that not only if you're doing something positive for you, if you're doing it with the intent of doing something positive for you and you know that you're doing it's sort of like you're taking today I'm going to go on a fantastic nature hike to so-and-so if you just do it for that reason you're going to get a lot of positive experience from it health-wise but if you say to yourself I'm going to go on this hike and do this because it's going to help me with XYZ and then you go do it it's sort of like compounding the positive and from an emotional, mental, spiritual perspective, I think it actually exponentially helps you more when you're doing things with intent and knowledge of why. And so when people are saying to me, I'm having a difficult time sleeping, I'm dreaming through this whole process, my response back to them now because of what we've discussed is that is your brain working in your behalf during sleep to help you process through what it is that you're going through. And so when people understand that, they can, that anxiety that develops because of it, now they understand why, then they can wake up in the morning and go, wow, my, my brain was working on my behalf big time last night. Yeah, it's like thanking your your mind for doing the legwork for you, like having your, a it couple is, of assistants is, in the background. <laughs> it is working using gratitude because a lot of people, that word is a very, contentious word in the in the grief community you know you can't go to someone who's lost their their child from suicide due to ptsd from coming back from a war you can't say to them you know what what are you you know you need to think about this whole process and what is it that you're grateful for that is such a nails down the chalkboard com communication for people but what it, what you can do is talk about the sparks of gratitude within the everyday experience of a grieving person and being able to say this is what your brain is doing on your behalf for you while you are sleeping then it takes on a whole different realm and then you start to understand where the gratitude comes from and then once people understand what gratitude is there for them in the grieving process then they start understanding it and the more you understand that and the more you embody this and espouse this into your everyday healing in your life, the bigger it grows and the and the more help you can get from it. And so your your discussions on these things are, are very, very highly needed in in regards to sleep. Um, I think it's it's crucial. So this is great. I'm glad you're telling me these things. <laughs> um, that's good. Yeah. So like a lot of and when it comes to dreams, a lot of people just don't understand the symbolism and the aspects. And it's okay not to understand something, but know that it's not against you. Like it's trying to help you. Mm -hmm. And that's the whole mm -hmm. thing with the the grief dreams website and platform is to help people try to find you know answers and some understanding that can help them mm -hmm. see the meaning behind it all, so they can. Uh, then be able to uh, tackle some of those issues, especially if they're, they're negative dreams, right? All right, lastly, right. you said you had one more dream, and what was that? Well, the other dream that I had uh, had to do with my grandmother. My grandmother and I had a very, very, very strong relationship uh, for all of my life, and both a supportive from my side to her and her to me all the way through. At the end of her life, uh, she developed a brain cancer uh, from lung ca cancer 
And uh, it was kind of a long journey for her, and things went downhill for her really fast. And after she died, a month or two after she died, and this was during the time as well that Jordan was having going through his cancer, I had a dream about her. I dreamt that I was in her home, and it was almost like a scene out of um, the, 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 the Wizard of Oz, where the house gets lifted up in the cyclone. Well, her house was like in a cyclone, like similar to the Wizard of Oz, and there was wind blowing all around the house, and all of the windows were open, and the front door was flying open, and she was in the house, and I was trying to help her, and it was a very dark, it, I could see in the dream, but it was just the, it was just an ominous dream, and I was trying to help her, but it was almost like I was in her own mind or something. I don't know. And I, it, again, it startled me and woke me up and I, there was no resolution from it. It just seemed like she was in a, in, not in a good place. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it does seem as if you're watching something rather than like, it's, it's a part of you in a way. Um, but like how you said, you're trying to help, but it was just like so much storms. And so what was your relationship like with her? Because that may have an understanding on why you're dreaming like that. Well, my grandmother, towards the end of, well, this wasn't, I don't think this was directly related to her cancer and her illness, but my grandmother also suffered from mental illness. And so there was a lot of strife in our family and she was sort of in the middle of it. And I had a young son at the time. I was living out of town. So I, I was removed from the drama that was going on in the middle of the, the, the situation. And so our, the ending of her life and the, the last years of her life were a little bit of estranged. And it was really unfortunate that it was like that. But I think, you know, during the time that she was going through all this. I was also going through a lot of my own things with, with, with Jordan's cancer and everything that was going on with him. And so I, it was, there was a disconnect in our relationship at the time of her death. I don't have any kind of negative feelings like regret or remorse or any of those feelings because I know the relationship from the time I was an, an infant to before all of this happened was a very strong, strong relationship. And I just I reflect back to those years, but there, there, it, she did die. When she did die, we did have kind of an estrangement and a detachment from each other at that time. So I was wondering if that had something to do with it as well. Yeah, you would, because you know, just looking at the imagery, you could definitely see you didn't have resentment because you wanted to help, right? So there's that love and compassion that's inside you. But it seems you could say like her mind was her own enemy. And yeah, I, say, I saw that with my dad, honestly, too, with his drinking and how he approached life. He didn't really like, he couldn't cope properly. And because of that, his mind um, was just full of anger and distrust. And so it really limited it on the relationships he could have. And I would say the same thing with, you know, probably her, she was going through a lot within herself. And it's almost like a window into her mind, just for you to see the, what she was dealing with, you know, like how, mm -hmm. how crazy the ego can get but they're not doing it on purpose. If you really look inside, you can see that there's really a lack of control out of their emotions. And it's just like I said, like a storm as you're going through, you're watching the storm go through this house. And it seemed like that's maybe what happened with her in, in those moments where you can just reflect on that dream and just have compassion for the pain she was in. Like she didn't want that relationship to end or to, to not be what it was. She was going through so much pain. That's all that 
came out from her mouth or came out through her behavior. And so it's just like having this compassion for where people are at in their own mind. And a lot of times we just mm -hmm. don't see it um, or they don't really articulate what they're going through and the struggles they're going through. They'll project their anger or their frustrations outward, but really it's an inward battle. Yeah. Well, there you go. That's you. You just nailed it right there, you know, and it's so, you know, that's, there's so much involved. Like I can just, this, this just makes me reflect back to a lot of the posts and the communication that I've seen over the years in grief anonymous groups about how, um, you know, a lot, there's just this stereotype of the person dies and you grieve their loss and you think about all the beautiful things and da, 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 da. Well, there's a lot of people out there who don't get to follow along in that emotional timeline after grief because they are still processing verbal abuse, estrangement, uh, family dispute. So many things happen to people on the other side of loss that people don't talk about. And so a lot of the sleep disturbances probably do come from the conflict and the fallout from grief and we often we, we even often talk about this that the loss of that person in your life is 50 percent of the trauma the other half is the fallout afterwards of dealing with it all and dealing because so many people don't know how to process their own grief they they lean on to others who are only trying or so overwhelmed with their own grief that they can't hardly even help themselves much less help other people and everybody it's almost like people get thrown in a swimming pool together and nobody knows how to swim and everybody's just trying to survive and save themselves or save others. And that's when people think. And I can see how the, the dreams and the, and the sleep get disturbed from all of these experiences. Grief is very messy. It's, it's not uh, for a lot of people. It's not just a clean and tidy, you know, experience like the movies make it out to be sometimes. Yeah, that's true. Okay, I'm curious for the last question uh, we always like to mm -hmm. ask is if you could have a dream tonight of Jordan, what would that look like to you? Well, seeing that he, um, you know, we we had a very, you know, personal private life when we were married and uh, we were, you know, living the dream. We were doing, we were going on about ourselves and doing everything the way we wanted to do it. And then the six years since his death, I would love to have a dream and sit down and just get his thoughts on everything that's happened since then. <laughs> that would be an extraordinary experience. And I can say this, that I do get a lot of signs from him. Even though I don't have dreams about him, the signs are amazing. And I know he is, 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 is happy with everything. I think he's very happy with where our son is at. And but it would just be so nice to be able to have that conversation and do a review of our lives and get his get his take. And I'm sure he would have a million things to say and half of it would be lectured <laughs> and half would be, you know, positive. <laughs> he was funny like that. But um yeah. That's but yeah, cool. it would well, that, be good. I like that, you know, and it's just like having that bond seeing him again. It's nice that you have um, other experiences that you take as a, uh, um, to remember him and for him to be a part of your life with those signs. And so what uh -huh. location would you want to be, where do you want to have this chat? So where do you want to be talking? Well, I would, it would be nice if we were, uh, since I know a lot about Canada, uh, Canada, it'd be nice if we were up in the Muskokas. 
Oh, okay. All right. I thought for a quick second you're going to say heaven, but you've already been there. So why not try somewhere else? <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, I miss Canada a lot, and I look forward to um, coming up there and and reconnecting with friends. And I, I applaud Canada and you and so many others. Canada is really doing a great job of the the grief community in Canada is exploding. Um, I'm very, I'm very happy to see, and there's a lot of the spiritual connection that's going on up there, and it seems to be a lot more accepted and uh, free flowing up there, and um, so it's great. And I, I give you guys a lot of props up there. So you know, this has been a uh, a wonderful podcast. You know, it was great talking to you. I said we could have talk, talked for for hours and hours, but we got to sort of cut this short. But I want <laughs> so at the end of the day, I um, just want to thank you for just sharing and being open and honest and and following your heart as you move through your own loss to then help others. And so, where can people find grief anonymous again? Okay, so we have two websites. One is griefanonymous.com. The other is griefresourcenetwork.com. And then all of our online uh, uh, grief support programs can be found on Facebook. All you have to do is go to Grief Anonymous, our main page. And within the page is a groups section or a groups tab. And once you hit on the groups tab, the tab will fall down and you will see over 20 different groups to choose from. And one of them is anticipatory grief, as we talked about. So once again, thanks. thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Joshua. This was really helpful on my side as well. Appreciate it immensely. Okay, so for anyone who wants to check out more on Grief Dreams, you can go to griefdreams.ca for more information. And if you want to contribute to the podcast and help us out a little bit, there's some links on the website. You can um, contribute there. And if you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams group and share your dreams or listen to dreams of others. We, we're on Twitter and Instagram at Grief Dreams and with love and gratitude from us to you. Introduce myself. You have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation.